to think about. There we go. You can hear me now? Okay. All right. This morning we will finish Galatians 5. So I'm going to read um, verses 13 through 16 again. So this is God's Word. It should be up on the screen. For you who were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul says we have freedom in the gospel, not the freedom to do whatever we want to do, but freedom to love and serve one another. Freedom to fulfill the law of God in Christ. And so now we're coming to verse 16, and Paul is going to explain how that works. How exactly do we use our freedom in the gospel for good instead of bad? Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Now that's the key to understanding all of this, but we're going to actually come back to that at the end because Paul's going to say this again. He's going to say more about it in verse 25. And so for now, what I want us to do is I want us to focus on the word desires. And we don't tend to think of desires as a problem in and of themselves. We tend to think of our actions as the problem. And that's actually a very Catholic way of thinking about the world, if you didn't know that. Catholics believe that actions are really the problem. The sin, it's not really a sin until you do something with it. Okay, but what Paul is saying here is that our desires are part of the problem. The Bible always encourages us to dig deeper and look further down. The Greek word for desire is epithumiae. And what that word means is a desire that is overinflated, a desire that becomes more important to us than it should be. That's when our desires become a problem. And that's really, according to the Scriptures, that's what leads to our sin, to our failure, right? our actions, is that we have something inside of us that's bigger and more important to us than it should be. Verse 17, For the desires, same word, of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires... It's interesting, that's not the same word. In fact, that word doesn't even actually exist in the text. It just says, and the Spirit is against the flesh. Okay, so Paul's not saying that the Spirit has evil desires. He's saying that the Spirit in its desires are against the flesh. So it's a different word. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In many places, the Bible teaches 
that believers in Christ are struggling with two natures at the same time on the inside. Both of these things are there. There's an old nature versus a new nature. There is sin versus the Spirit. And here in this passage, there's going to be the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. I like the way Tim Keller, uh, who recently passed away, he he defines the word flesh. He said the flesh is idolatrous over-desires. He's using that word, that idea of over-inflated desires arising from a heart that is afraid to trust God and wants to be its own Savior and Lord. Let me say that again. Okay, so the flesh, what Paul is talking about here, is this, this, this heart desire, this idolatrous desire that, that is afraid to trust God in our daily life and instead wants to be its own Savior and Lord. But I want you to look at the end of this verse because it's very important and it's easy to miss. It says, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, immediately in our brain, we think he means sin. But if you look more carefully and you read the verse as it's written, especially in Greek, what is our true nature as a Christian? What is our primary nature? What is it that the Christian really wants? What this is actually saying is that we want what the Spirit wants. Our deepest desire as a Christian is to obey God. And so we need to dig deeper in order to see this tension at work. That's actually how that verse is written. What you want to do is what the Spirit wants you to do. Because your primary identity, if you want to use that language, is that you are in Christ. The Spirit trumps the flesh. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, our motivation to obey God is not an external law. Instead, it is an internal reality. We are being led by the Spirit away from sin. And what is sin? What is the Spirit leading us away from? Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They are obvious. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery or witchcraft. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, impurity, sorry, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, that that means drunken parties, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, I want you to examine the list closely. And what you will notice is that some of these sins favor the religious people, okay? The quote-unquote good people who are doing what good people should be doing. That some of these sins kind of favor church people. And some of the sins that Paul lists, as this is always the case, all of Paul's lists, there's some that kind of lean towards how we think, how we do in the church, and then there's some that kind of more focus on what the pagans do, right? The non-religious people do. But he sandwiches all of these things together intentionally to eliminate the self-righteousness that is common among religious people who tend to exclude themselves, right? Because they keep these things and they don't do those things. In 1 Corinthians 6, um, there's a, a similar situation. But what I want you to notice that all of these things, all these sins are a problem. And I don't think it, it's intentional that Paul begins with the list of sexual sins. Uh, sorry, I do think it's intentional. Man, I'm all off. Okay, it is intentional that Paul begins the list with sexual sins. In fact, all of Paul's lists, every single one of them, there's several, he always begins with sexual sin. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul argues that sexual sin is the most destructive to us as individuals. So there is something to that, right? We've talked about this before. By saying that all of these types of sins, the religious people sins, the non-religious people sins, that they are all, they are all equally damning to us, right? They were all sin in the eyes of God. Um, that's not to say that some things aren't more destructive to us than others. And, and Paul's not saying that either. And I think that's an important, important note. But something else that I want you to notice about this list, something that's true of sin in general, is this. All sin is relational. All of the sins that we commit, they're all relational. Which means that somehow, when we commit sin it always involves or at least affects other people in our lives. You can't do any of these things completely in isolation from the world. Sin is never a victimless crime. Right? Even the things we think we're doing alone in private where no one knows. It always has consequences to relationships because we're relational creatures. This is how God has created us. And so our sin has consequences beyond the self. Finally, notice this clear warning at the end. He says, people who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So continuing in these sins without repentance, without godly sorrow, without some desire to be different, to change, that would be evidence that 
we are not in Christ. That we are not, to use His words, being led by the Spirit. So if you continue to live these types of lifestyles, whether it's the religious sins or the irreligious, and, and there, is no, there is no pull of the Spirit away from these things, if you, if you sense no tension in your heart, no, not just that you feel sorry that you, that you did it or you got caught, but that, that you know you've offended God and that you feel in your soul that there's something that needs to change, right? that, you want, that you want to change. If there's nothing like that, that's a, that's a major problem. That's a big, it's a big red flag, right? <clears throat> Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says, against such things there is no law. Now, what does he mean by that? We've all heard the fruit of the Spirit. We, we've sung it. We know it, right? Against, uh, or love, joy, peace, patience. But, but what does he mean, against such things there is no law? This fruit, which he says is, is fruit that's produced by the work of the Spirit, is, is internal, right? It's never merely external. Okay, so things like love, joy, peace, they come from the inside out. We could fake them, right? You could fake to be a joyful person. But there's something inside of you that has to come out for it to be real. Right? Now think about the law. And I don't just mean God's law. I just mean like the law of the land, the city that we live in, right? The law can deal with behavior. Only the Spirit can deal with the heart. For instance, if you walk out from church today and you you try to go to your car and you realize that it's not where you left it, that someone has stolen your car during church, God forbid, and then you call the police and they come and they gather evidence. Let's say they find the person, you know, you, you had an air tag on your car or something, which you should, you should never go after your car yourself. We know this, right? Um, but let's say you tell the police, well, I know where my car is. So they go and they find your car and they arrest the person that stole your car. They arrest the person for committing the crime. But... They can't do anything to change the delinquency of the person's heart that chose to steal your car, right? The law says they can arrest the person, punish them certain ways, right? But they can't change the person's heart that led them to commit that crime. In the same way, God's law says do not steal, But the law itself is powerless to change your heart. 
God's Spirit needs to get inside and change the problem at the root. It's an internal problem, not an external problem. Second, and this is really, really important. So if you don't hear anything else that I say today, just pay attention for just the next two to three minutes. Fruit is only produced by a fruit tree. Apples come from an apple tree. Pears come from a pear tree. Bananas come from a banana tree, right? What we produce depends on the kind of tree we are and also how healthy we are, right? So an apple tree that's been struck by lightning and it hasn't rained for three months is probably not going to produce much, much fruit, right? So it needs to be the right kind of tree and it needs to be a healthy tree. This is a way for Paul to make a distinction between works of faith that grow from healthy, mature fruit trees versus works of self-righteousness. Let me explain. And I've used this before, but if I take a bucket of apples and I go out into my yard, I don't have any apple trees in my yard. You know I have a lot of? Pine trees. Okay? So I go up to one of my pine trees and I take that bucket of apples and I get a staple gun and I staple apples to the pine tree. Does that make it an apple tree? Of course not, right? That's silly, okay? The apples are going to do what? They're going to rot and they're going to fall off and it's going to keep on being a pine tree because it's not an apple tree. Now listen to me. This is important. Dressing up a lifeless soul with external works changes nothing and it does not please God. We tend to focus on the fruit instead of focusing on the root. We tend to think that our job is to, I got to be more joyful. I got to find my peace. You know, devil's stealing my joy today, right? I got to think, I got to focus on that. That in and of itself will never work because it's like trying to staple an apple on the wrong kind of tree. It's like putting lipstick on a pig, right? Still a pig. And so when we focus on works, it doesn't change the heart. Finally, it's worth mentioning that the word fruit is singular. It's not plural. And you may have heard this before, right? It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit, right? All of this fruit is connected and produced by the Spirit together. So we don't focus on our joy or our self-control as if these virtues are separate. Um, it's all, it all comes the same way 
Um, these are all connected. And, and also notice that just like the list of sins, the fruit of the Spirit is all very, very relational. We demonstrate this fruit in relationships with other people, right? What, what's the point of joy or self-control or any of these things if they're not demonstrated in relationship with other people? That's how they're exhibited. And so um, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Now we come to the heart of the matter, verse 24. <clears throat> and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says, we have crucified the flesh. That's past tense. It has already happened. And so, what are we doing now? If we have crucified the flesh, what are we doing now? We are watching it die. Now, that's kind of a gruesome image, but that's the one the Bible uses. Our sin is being crucified before us, and we are watching it die. That should be our posture towards the sin that we uncover, that the Spirit uncovers inside of us. Okay? Now, this is a very powerful image. I, know I don't want you to take this for granted. I want you to really focus and think about it for a moment. I want you to imagine with me, in your mind, our Lord hanging on the cross. And there's a crowd gathered around to mock and ridicule Jesus as He died. Which is what the Gospels describe for us, right? The Gospels describe in detail what the crucifixion was like. And the people hated Him mocked him, ridiculed him. He was, in those moments, an object of wrath. And what was Jesus doing? He was in the act of defeating sin and death for people who clearly didn't deserve that. And so Paul borrows that image. Think about Jesus on the cross. He borrows that image and he says that in Christ, our sin now hangs on that cross. And we are still in the place of the crowd, but now, led by the Spirit, we are watching our sin die with hatred and contempt. But do we? Is this our posture towards sin? Are we watching it die with hatred and contempt? Because I think very often, instead of watching our flesh be crucified, we just give it a little slap on the wrist. Right? Or worse, we coddle it. We indulge it. We excuse it. 
We let the culture influence our opinion of it. Instead, we must hate it. You understand sin of all kinds, of all stripes, of all shapes and sizes. Sin wants to destroy us. It wants to wreck us. It wants to drag us down. And so, you know, just say no to sin, that's not enough, okay? That's not what the Bible is teaching. Paul is telling us to dig it up out of our hearts. Root and stem with all of its passions and desires, all of it. Wrench it out and give it a painful death. It has no place in the heart to be shared with the Spirit of the living God. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so we're back to this idea again of walking with the Spirit. Now the the key question is this. This is what's going to make all this really come together and make sense. Where is the Spirit going? Where is the Spirit going? Okay, so if I'm supposed to walk with Him, in step with Him, the, the logical question is where is He going? Which means where am I going, right? Back in verse 17, Paul suggested that the Spirit has desires too and that those desires are the opposite of sin. What is it that the Spirit then desires? What does He yearn for? What is He passionate about? The Spirit is passionate about one thing, glorifying Jesus. The glory of God. That's what the Spirit is. That's what the Spirit is passionate about. That's where He's taking us. And what that means is, practically speaking, again and again, He takes us to Jesus. He shows us Jesus. And Jesus again becomes our greatest desire. You know, we tend to think that sin. It's so difficult. It's so, it's so difficult to overcome my sin, right? Because it's just its desires are so strong. How do I fight this? How do I, how do I overcome this? It's just so strong. It's so, it, I, you know, it just feels like you were born this way. And it's just, it's just so easy to, to explain and to, and to excuse and... It's just so strong, God. How can I overcome this in my life? In fact, the opposite is true. The problem is not that those desires are so strong. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And brothers and sisters, that's the truth of it. And so the encouragement is to continue digging deeper. There is nothing in your heart right now that is more powerful than the love of Christ Jesus for you. There's nothing that you're struggling with that cannot be overcome by His Spirit. Your sin is already doomed. It's already crucified, Paul says. And so rejoice in what God has done. Rejoice in the freedom that you have in the gospel. Follow the lead of the Spirit away from sin and towards Jesus. Finally, verse 26. This verse seems strange. It seems out of place. He says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But if you remember, when we, if you go back to verse 15, I think it is, he said something very similar. And as I said, the list of sin and the list of the fruit, it's all relational. And so all of this is connected in terms of what he's thinking about, which is the assumption that we are all involved in Christian community, that we are in relationships with one another. What he's saying is that the Spirit uses the church, the community of faith, to help us get where we're going. We're better together. The truth is, one person walking alone is not going to go anywhere. You are far more likely to get thrown off course if you're walking by yourself. It's impossible to faithfully do this alone. And yet, being in community, even with Christians, is an absolute challenge. Because each of us in this room has this battle going on inside between the flesh and the spirit. And we're not all on the same page, right? Some days the flesh feels like it's winning for most of us, right? And so we have to be there for each other. What is conceit? Conceit is an overly inflated view of oneself. It's a heart that says... I matter more than you do. And when a whole group of people struggle with that, it causes some problems, right? And that's the church. Why might we provoke or envy one another? Because we think of this life as a competition. And churches tend to struggle with this as much, if not more, than anybody, right? 
coming in here trying to show off how good we are and how much better we are, right? That, that temptation is always in the heart, even of Christians, because we think we have some hope of being better or more valuable than other people when we know we should know that's not true. And so we need Holy Spirit to humble us once again, to remind us who we are. And the Lord's table is one of the ways that God does that. You know, I hope, that none of us is worthy to approach the table of the Lord. None of us coming in ourselves with whatever we've done, good or bad, none of us is worthy to come to this table. Not, not one single person in this room. But His grace levels the field, right? It is sufficient for us. No matter what your sin, His grace is sufficient. And in Christ... We are freely invited to come to this table to eat together, receiving Him in faith.